0: All right, this morning I asked Anna Brown to come and do our scripture reading. So she's, as she comes up, why don't you stand for the reading of God's word? We're going to be in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 14.
1: In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given the command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from, from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not so many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? "'This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven.' Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying.' Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers.
0: go. So if you you take nothing else away today from this message, here's what I want you to take away. God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. All right, so picture this. Let's put ourselves in the story for a minute. I asked you to do that last week as you read through Acts. We're going to put ourselves in the story a little bit. Jesus had been brutally whipped and beaten and murdered. And you know that he was buried because the women told you where he was buried. And, and they had gone to the tomb on that Sunday morning. And, but they had come back from the tomb and they were babbling and squawking about Jesus being risen from the dead and, and he was alive. And at first you didn't believe him. And then a few hours later, Jesus appears to you. And you saw him with your own eyes. And there was something different about Jesus. But he did not really act any different. Uh, he, he, uh, he still spoke in that mysterious way that he always seemed to do, uh, speaking in parables and riddles that made you think. But the biggest difference was that he could appear and disappear wherever, whenever he wanted to. It was a bit surprising. He would show up in a room with locked doors, or, or he was on the road all of a sudden there, and then he was in the garden, he was on the lakeshore, and he was just there everywhere. At first he wasn't, and then he was. Kind of surprising. And every time he was with you, he would talk about the same thing, the kingdom of God. That's God's kingdom was here and it was in our midst and and that he himself was the king. And it seemed confusing because nothing had really changed. The Romans were still ruling and Israel was still under occupation and everyone was still dirt poor and he wasn't sitting on a throne. So what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God had come? And most times that he was with you, Jesus would eat something. He ate fish with you on the seashore. He ate in the upper room. And, and he, he, if he could just simply appear out of nowhere, then why would he eat? What was, what was the purpose of that? Well, anyway, it was during one of those times when he was sitting with them and, and when he was eating with them that he told his disciples not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise that the Father had said would come, a baptism of the Holy Spirit. Another one of those mysterious things that Jesus was always saying. And then why wait in Jerusalem? That was where nothing good ever happened. They had gone back to Galilee, spent time fishing, been uh, hung out with family, and now they're to go back to Jerusalem, the place where Jesus was killed, where they had failed, where people would recognize them as the crazy follower of Jesus and where they would be thrown, could potentially be thrown into prison. And they were to go there and wait for the Spirit of God, the fulfillment of God's promise. And so all those things would have been run through my mind if I was there. What does this all mean, Right? So let's take a look at what was going on. The promise in verse 1, 1 through 5. Chapter 1, 1 through 5. Now, when did God the Father actually promise that the Spirit of God would come? Back in in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to be going uh, back and forth a little bit today, so just to beware. Uh, You can try to follow along with me. Otherwise, just listen. I will read them all to you. But Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. I want you to hear this. Uh, This is John the Baptist, in in reference to John the Baptist. As the people were uh, in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, and the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So the promise was prophesied back in John the Baptist's time. So good old John the baptizer knew all about it way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And his baptism was into water in response to repentance and belief was an outward picture of how God would baptize with the Holy Spirit in response to repentance and belief. And John himself was a fulfillment of a prophetic thing in the Old Testament when he was crying a voice crying in the wilderness. But where did John learn about this 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 promise of the Father. Okay, Luke three four to six talks about John the Baptist, and it quotes the Old Testament. Uh, It's actually Isaiah chapter forty verse three to five. And so here's the quote from Luke chapter 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is talking about John the Baptist preparing the way. But what's interesting is John knew that he was the fulfillment of this passage in Isaiah. And this passage begins a few verses earlier in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, with the phrase, comfort, comfort my people, says God. And then a few chapters later, in chapter 44 of Isaiah, he says this, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Hmm, way back in Isaiah. And then there's this prophet, Joel, kind of an obscure prophet. In chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, it says this. Joel, the prophet, said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And then Ezekiel, very uh, prominent prophet in the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 36, he says something very similar. He says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So God's comfort God's recreation of our innermost selves, our hearts, God's blessings would come to us in the form of his own spirit, and that spirit would reside in us. That was the promise. And that was the promise from the Old Testament, and we experience that today. When Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God which is the rule and reign of God the Father over the earth with Jesus sitting at his right hand in the seat of power, he was talking about the unseen, almost imperceptible, yet powerful and unstoppable Spirit of God ruling and reigning in our hearts and the lives of men and women that put their faith in Jesus all around the world. And this has been the incredible plan of God and the purpose of God since before the world even began. In Luke chapter 24... I'm gonna turn there real quick. Luke chapter 24. We read what Jesus said right before His ascension. Verse 44 says this, and He spoke to them, to His disciples. Jesus said, and He said this: These are My words that I've spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about Me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is all Old Testament. Remember. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Okay, so Jesus is even going back and looking at the Old Testament. So everything in the law of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms was about Jesus. Repentance and forgiveness of sins is the way into this incredible kingdom of God that Jesus preached. And repentance, remember, is admitting this. It's it's something like this. There is no other God besides the true God and I am an unworthy sinner. The only way of salvation is through Jesus and I cannot find salvation in anyone else. I cannot tack anything on to Jesus. I must trust in him alone. I am convinced that Jesus alone is the means of salvation. That's repentance and belief. And this, this repentance and belief results in forgiveness of sins. When our sins are forgiven, we are washed clean. We are given a new heart, and God's Spirit comes to reside inside of us. We become the dwelling place of God. And that actually is mind-blowing. We say that, but it's mind-blowing. And the unsaved cannot understand it, that God's Spirit lives in us. Luke 17, Jesus said this, Luke seventeen twenty. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Do you hear what Jesus said? The kingdom of God is in the midst of us, God in us. Jesus did not come to restore Israel's earthly kingdom. No, he came to restore Israel's purpose and their calling to be the dwelling place of God upon the earth. But Jesus went beyond just restoring Israel for this purpose. He opened the door for the kingdom of God to be enjoyed and available to all people all around the world. And it's said that in Luke chapter 24, and we saw it in our passage today in Luke chapter, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Now, I want you to look back. At verses two and three, it says unto the day he was taken up, and after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during forty days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So Jesus presents himself alive by many proofs: eating, walking, talking, sitting, laughing, touching. The Spirit of God brings life, and he was proving that he was actually alive. He wasn't just a spirit. But what Jesus was talking about while he was with them was what? It was about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? I've already said it's It's the rule and reign of Jesus in the hearts and lives of men and women who believe. The Spirit now indwells those who repent and believe, and he rules and reigns over them. The book of Acts is all about the acts of the Holy Spirit. How he changes lives, how he saves souls, how he empowers the weak, how he gives voice to the voiceless, how he guides the lost and he he loves the sinner, he he softens the heart. In essence, how he rules and reigns within us right now. And it's not coincidence that the the phrase, the kingdom of God, bookends the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Three, and then at the very end, in Acts chapter 28, verse 31, it tells us that uh, Luke tells us that uh, Paul preached the kingdom of God while he was in, in prison. So it was Jesus' message, it was Peter's message, it was Paul's message, and it's the message for today. But the disciples were still a little confused, and maybe, maybe like some of us who are reading this passage or listening to the message right now, uh, if Jesus is really reigning on earth, present tense, then why is there still so much evil? Why is our world falling apart around us? Why does Satan still get to do so much harm? Are you sure that you have the timing right about this? Maybe Jesus' reign begins in a few years, but it doesn't seem to be happening today. So that's where we get to point number two, the question of the disciples. And they say, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, someone could conclude from this question that the disciples were still mistaken concerning what Jesus was up to, misunderstanding the plan of God yet again. But I tend to look at this passage and I conclude that the disciples, like many of us, were simply thinking too small. They were thinking too small. They were still concerned with the geopolitical nation of Israel. They were focused on who was physically ruling, who was in the physical seat of power. When would Jesus make Their nation autonomous again, free, prosperous, righteous, great. When would they be that again? The prophecies were all in the Old Testament. It it would happen, so would it happen now? Would Jesus come and do that now? Was now the time? And they were thinking too small, looking only at the physical, concerned only with the nation of Israel, preoccupied with what was going on in their neck of the woods, only what they could see. And we humans are so nearsighted. We want to know when Jesus will reign physically on the earth. We want to see him sitting in the seat of power at the head of our nation. It doesn't matter which nation you're part of. Even when we were in Papua New Guinea, they wanted to see Jesus reigning over their nation. Not the other ones, just theirs, right? We have good reason and motive for wanting Jesus to rule over our nation. We want an end to tyranny. We want the injustice, the war, the propaganda, the division, the poverty to all end, right? We all long for Jesus to physically reign on the earth. The disciples longed for it. And this was a good longing, a natural longing. It's a hopeful longing. It's a good thing. It's true. It's, it's based in truth. Jesus will one day return and reign physically in the geopolitical nations of the earth. He will, he will rule them all. But Jesus' answer turned them away from the physical, geopolitical, nationalistic perspective, and he enlarged their perspective. He enlarged it. In essence, he says, yes, I will do all that. I will end tyranny and injustice and war and propaganda and abuse and trafficking and slavery and poverty and division, all that nasty stuff. But it is not for you to know when that will happen. It will happen, but the Father is not going to reveal to you that date and time. He knows when the opportune time, when the correct season is for all this to happen. And he has not revealed it to anyone. He has kept it a secret. Don't look at what's seen. A political leader, even all the political leaders together, cannot change hearts. True change, lasting peace, can only happen when sin is repented of, trust is placed in Jesus' sacrifice, and forgiveness is bestowed, and the powerful spirit is placed into new hearts. The real power, the real change, the eternal, lasting kingdom of God is realized when Jesus' Through the Holy Spirit, reigns in the hearts and lives of each individual who believes. And this is the hope of the world. Jesus died and rose for everyone. Those who believe and are forgiven are welcomed into that kingdom. A kingdom that knows no geopolitical boundary, is not concerned with nationalistic pride, and trusts in the quiet, unseen rule and reign of God the Father in the hearts and lives of his children through the indwelling Spirit. So Jesus said to disciples, don't worry about when and how God is going to rain judgment down upon the nations, the evil kingdoms of the world, Satan, his horde of demons. You let God the Father handle that. God the Father will exact his wrath, his vengeance, his justice according to his authority in his way and in his time. I have something else for you to concern yourself with. And he said the same thing back in Mark. Remember in Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, But concerning that day and hour when, when this is all going to be done, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard then and keep awake. Remember we talked about that? For you do not know when the time will come. We're to stay awake. We're to watch. Now I go back to Daniel 2. Daniel chapter 2 uh, Daniel lived in a a tumultuous time under crazy kings who made crazy edicts and crazy decisions and it wasn't safe. And he said this, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets kings up. So God has it under control. Political leaders are nothing to God. He sets them up and he removes them with the snap of his fingers. Nothing to him. First Thessalonians chapter five, the apostle Paul says much of the same thing too. First Thessalonians five one to six. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have me write anything to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon pregnant women, and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Paul says the same thing that Jesus said. It's not for us to know the times and seasons. We're not in the darkness. We're in the day. And we're not going to be surprised because we're waiting we're watching for it. We're children of the light. You see, our perspective is too small, oftentimes. God's plan through Jesus was and is much bigger than the disciples or any of us could imagine. I'm gonna to turn to Isaiah again, because Isaiah is a really important book if you haven't figured that out yet. Isaiah chapter 49, verse six and seven. Listen to this. It is too light a thing, or too small a thing, that you should be my servant and raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God's plan was never simply about the nation of Israel. That is too small a thing. Their nation was to be a light to the rest of the nations. God's salvation doesn't stop at Israel, but reaches to the ends of the earth. And Jesus echoes that same responsibility to the disciples in Acts chapter 1. They are to bring light to the nations. In verse 7 in Isaiah chapter 49 says this Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One. Who's his Holy One? Jesus. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. Who is deeply despised and abhorred by his nation? Jesus. The servant of rulers who came down to serve? Jesus. Kings will see and arise, princes, and they will prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So the Redeemer and His Holy One is is Jesus, the one deeply despised by the nation. He's the Redeemer of all mankind. He's the Holy One of God who was abhorred by His own people. He's a servant of kings. And the Holy One, Jesus, is the one who has chosen you, He said. He chose Israel at first. And then he chose the disciples, and then he chose the church, and he chose you, each and every one of you. God is outside space and time. He already sees what is, and the nations right now are worshiping him, and his kingdom is established forever. God's kingdom is not of this world. We've got to think differently when we think about this. His kingdom is unseen. Paul says we walk by faith, not by sight. His kingdom is spiritual and almost imperceptible. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is not coming away to be observed that they will say, look here or there. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is global. Have you ever felt that indescribable connection when you meet another believer for the first time? Like even if you're in another country, in another place, all the way across the planet, you meet a believer and you know there's this instant connection, right? That's part of the kingdom of God. They have the spirit of God in them. They're part of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is like that. It doesn't need technology or laptops or internet or or social media to bind his people together. God's spirit fills each and every one of his people, unifying them as they pray and read his word and focus on Jesus, their leader. And lastly, his kingdom is ingenious. See, the devil thinks he's winning. He, he deceives and he pulls strings his, on his political and wealthy and powerful puppets to try to gain control of the whole planet so that everyone will worship him. But all along, God is silently, calmly, lovingly, creatively, graciously using everything that Satan does against him. God is not a fool. God is not mocked. God is not outwitted. God will never be defeated. And I've been reading right now that the church is growing exponentially around the globe. In some of the most difficult places, people are coming to faith in droves. Muslims are notoriously difficult to convert to Christianity. For hundreds of years, nigh impossible. However, more Muslims have come to faith in the past ten years than in all their years of history combined. On the West Coast, there are revivals happening in beaches and, and in the churches that are, opening are, are open are just busting at the seams. The church in Iran is growing exponentially in the midst of pandemic, in the midst of political chaos, in the midst of wars and rumors of wars, in the midst of tyranny and injustice, in the midst of communism and, and fascism. God is at work. And his kingdom is expanding and the Holy Spirit is still acting today just like he did in the book of Acts. And Jesus said that we're not to worry about the times and seasons. Too many are worried about predicting what will happen next or or preoccupied with dates and details, trying to be the one who predicts when Jesus will return, right? Jesus says, don't concern yourself with that. Do what I say. And here's what Jesus says we're to be about while God is working out his plan according to his purpose. And his set time for all those evil kingdoms and all Satan and all that, he's working that out. We're to live out two promises that he gives us. First one, back in Acts, you will receive power. Promise number one. The disciples and thus we will receive power when the Spirit comes upon us. And the Spirit comes upon us at the time of our belief. When we put our faith and our trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. So right now as we sit here, this power is in us and available to us. The power of God comes from the spirit of God. The spirit of the power of God are a gift to us. And the kingdom is in our midst, remember? And what does the work of the indwelling spirit look like? Well, that's where our theme comes from. In 2 Timothy 1, if I can find it. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 6 to 8. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the sufferings of the gospel by the power of God. So it's not a a spirit of fear, it's not a spirit of shame, it's not a spirit of apathy, it's a spirit of power and love and self control. Power, and there's that word again. It means strength, power, ability. The Spirit of God makes it possible, gives us the ability to live out the calling as citizens of his kingdom in our lives. And then there's love, not hate, not vengeance, not greed, not manipulation, but love, agape love, the kind of love that desires what is best for others, but, but then just doesn't just stay at that desire, it does what's best for others. At its own expense. Agape love is unconditional. Agape love is undeserved. Agape love is unstoppable. Agape love is the love of, for us as displayed in Jesus. The love that left all the comforts of heaven for a cattle stall. The love that forsook his position as Lord of all to be hunted by a maniac king. The love that took on human flesh and, in place of robes of glory. The love that served instead of demanded. The love that cared for instead of taking advantage of the needy. The love that suffered for instead of exacting vengeance upon his enemies. The love that was murdered for others instead of defending himself. The love that gave it all instead of taking it all. The love that exalts grace over law. The love that rose again instead of staying dead. And this is the type of love that the Spirit of God has put into our hearts This is what characterizes us as followers of Jesus, as citizens of the kingdom of God, or at least it should. So power, love, and then self-control, or sound mind, as some versions put it. A mind that is fixed on Jesus, convinced of his sovereignty, secure in his love, resting in his finished work, living in obedience to him, will be sound. A sound mind is a mind that has good judgment. A sound mind is controlled, Rational, sensical, alert, awake, not deceived by the lies. When the rest of the world, the kingdoms of this world, are freaking out, and they are, just look around. They're content to spin out of control while they tirelessly grab and they fuss and they hate and they deceive and they kill and they abuse. We need to be reminded that the Spirit of God is in us, the same Spirit that rules the nations, that raised Jesus from the dead, that created the cosmos, that same spirit guards and protects and keeps us under control. And we have self-control, minds that are sound, not fearful, not panicked, not anxious, but calm, peaceful, assured, convinced, courageous, bold. We have love, both extended to us from God and extended through us to others. And we have power to do what's right and power to be his number two witnesses. Promise number two, you will be my witnesses. Notice it's a, po- it's a promise. You will receive power and then you will be my witnesses. The whole point is this. The reason that God gives us his spirit and his power and his love is so that we witness to the gospel of Jesus. The message of the king, that the kingdom is here. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. This is about him. In John chapter 15, Jesus said this. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness of me. And this is the ancient call of God to his people, to witness of his salvation. This has been the purpose from long ago. And I'm going to show you back where? Back in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 43. This has been the call of God since the beginning of time. If I can find Isaiah again. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 8 to 13. He says this, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf, yet have ears. I love it. Bring out the people who are blind, yet they see. Bring out the deaf, yet they hear. People of faith in Jesus, hear and see and understand what reality truly is. Verse 9 All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and there and besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. I save and no one can take out of my hand. Sounds very similar to what Jesus says, doesn't it? So in verse 9, he talks about all the nations gathering together. It's a global thing. God has always had a heart for the nations. For all of his creation, he loves the whole world and wants, and wants everyone to call upon his name. And in verse 10, he says, You will be my witnesses. And what were they to witness about? That I am God. I am the true God. There's no savior besides me. When God saves, there's no one that can deliver from his hand. And why are we to declare these truths? Why are we to witness of God's salvation, his gospel, his good news? In verse 9, So that they hear and say, It is true. It is true because it's the truth, so that people see the truth. And number two in verse 10, so that they may know and believe in me. This message has been all the way from the beginning, it has never changed. Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's character, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1. This Jesus is the focus, the apex, the answer, the Savior, the hope of the world, and he always has been. This is the ultimate, timeless message of salvation. Jesus is the only true hope of humanity. He is the only king who can rule the world. And and right now, we have all kinds of people saying there's all kinds of other hopes for humanity. Viruses, kings, leaders, whatever. Jesus is the only true hope for humanity. And this is why we're here on earth. This is why God doesn't just take us out and take us to heaven when we believe. Our purpose is to share this incredibly good news that God of the cosmos became one of us was sacrificed for us on the cross and now offers forgiveness and life and hope and power and love to all who simply believe in Jesus. And we're to take this to the ends of the earth. This is our purpose and our calling, to take this message to the ends of the earth. You know, your pastor takes this calling very seriously. Um, we are to be on mission. I was a mission pastor for a while too and then we were on the field for 10 years. You know what? We lived in Papua New Guinea and we lived on this mountain range. We were at the very end of this mountain range and the name of the mountain range was the Finisterre Mountain Range. You know what Finisterre means? It means the ends of the earth. It literally means the ends of the earth. So we've been to the ends of the earth and back again and, and you know what? If God can use little old me from little old Waukesha, Wisconsin, then he wants to use each one of you too to take the gospel all around this planet beginning right here in North Prairie, just a little small town like Galilee, with normal people like Bartholomew and Matthew and and Andrew, to blue-collar workers and fishermen like Peter and and James and John, to doubters like Thomas. When we believe in him, normal, average Joes and Janes and Mikes and Marys and, and Kevins and Karens are filled with the promised Holy Spirit and we're equipped by his power, enabled by his love to witness for him and proclaim his kingdom has come in our midst. Starting in this place, in our Jerusalem, in North Prairie, and on, on to Judea, our Waukesha County, and then on to Samaria, Milwaukee, and Madison, to the ends of the earth, wherever you go. And this is what Jesus saved us for. To come into relationship with him, to follow him as our king, to give him glory, and to rest in his power and to be his witnesses wherever we go. That's 25 years of pent-up mission preaching coming out right there. So... Um, <laughs> You're going to have to hold on to your seats because we've got more where that came from, not just today, but in the, in the weeks to come, okay? So let's get through these last two points really quick. The Ascension, verse 9 through 11. So Jesus was taken up from them right into the sky and these guys, these disciples, are like us. They're standing there like, what just happened, right? Minds Blown. Again, Jesus rose up from the ground and just goes into the sky. It wasn't a hoverboard, no helicopter with retractable cable. This wasn't Beam Me up, Scotty. Jesus simply rose up by his own power and he ascended into heaven. And if I was standing there, I'd probably be wondering what's going on too. And I think my draw would have hit the, hit the ground as well. And so there's these two guys standing there and they're like, hey, dude, snap out of it. Get going. He isn't coming back right now. He asks you to do something. He has work for you to do. But he will come in the same way that he went. He will come in the same way that he went. And this was prophesied back in the Old Testament too. Daniel 7, 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds in heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Mark chapter 14, 62, Jesus prophesied. Jesus said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Revelation chapter 1, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. So he will come back in the same way that you saw him, clothed in majesty and light, riding upon the clouds, reigning over the nations in justice and righteousness. Obey what he said to you to do. Go and wait for the Spirit and you will be witnesses of this great and awesome God when he comes with clouds. And so they're supposed to go and wait. Verse 12 to 14 In Acts chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. So in verse 12, they returned to Jerusalem and they entered the city. And then they obediently waited. While they were waiting, they were busy doing something. They were not reading the newspaper or binge-watching the latest sitcom or scrolling for hours on social media or planning their next course of action for the, the weeks or months to come. No, look at verse 14. With one accord, with one mind, they were busy doing What? They were devoting themselves to prayer. Devoting is the word, I'm going to butcher it, proscatero. It means to be in constant readiness. Remember that word ready? To be in constant readiness, waiting constantly. They were obediently waiting and while they were waiting, they were waiting in prayer. I wonder if they were praying prayers like Psalm 25, To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Indeed, none who wait for you will be put to shame. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Or Psalm 31, Be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits And in his word, I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman waits for the morning. Isaiah 33, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in time of trouble. Isaiah 40, 31, they who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Isaiah 64, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen uh, a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Lamentations 3, It is good for one to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians, lest you think it's all Old Testament, 1 Thessalonians, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, to wait for his Son from heaven coming on clouds, who he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The disciples did not know what steps to take. They were a bit fearful of the political and religious powers in place. Most of them had left their full-time jobs to follow Jesus, so they were dependent on him for provision. They didn't know what was going to happen. So they did the only thing they knew what to do while waiting. They prayed. And this is our example. We're just like the disciples. We don't know what's coming next. There are seemingly insurmountable obstacles in front of us. We look down the road and imagine frightening scenarios. I'm sure they thought the same thing. We have the story in front of us right here. We know what God did through them. We read about their incredible courage and their grace under fire. We see how God's Spirit paved the way and worked in them and through them to save thousands of souls and exponentially expand the kingdom of God. But in that moment, in the upper room, they didn't know any of that. They didn't see it. And in that moment, they didn't completely comprehend how God had created them and Jesus had prepared them and His Spirit would soon fill them for such a time as this. So they prayed. They prayed for wisdom, for for discernment, for God's spirit to guide them, for courage. They prayed that his kingdom would come. And man, did God ever answer that prayer. We may be in that upper room moment. None of us knows what's ahead. The scenarios we play out in our mind can often be frightening. We have concerns about our family and our children. How do we prepare them to live and grow up in a world that's very different from the ones that we grew up in? How do we prepare for what we think is imminent difficulty and potential suffering? The answer is we don't. We pray. We pray together with. For who were they praying with? Look at that the, end of that, the end of that passage. They were with the women and with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They prayed as a family of believers, which is comprised of individual family units, mothers and fathers and sons and daughters. And this is where the power came from. The courage, the direction, the preparation, all was given to them as they prayed together and waited for the indwelling spirit. So what do we do? We pray. We pray as a family of believers. We pray as family units. We devote ourselves to prayer. We wait for God's spirit to move and answer to our prayer. And then we step out into the role that he called us to. We pray for wisdom for the day. We pray for discernment for the hour. We pray for courage by the minute. We pray for God's kingdom to come into the hearts and lives of those around us. And God has placed each of us, this is a hard thing to wrap our heads around, God has placed each of us, even our children, even our children, in this particular place, at this particular time in history, with this particular family around us, for such a time as this. He has a call on every one of us. He has saved us, he's called us, he's filled us with his spirit, placed us in his kingdom, and has equipped us with everything we need to fulfill the Great Commission, which is simply to witness to the reality and the power of the gospel of Jesus to save lives. We trust God to take care of the rest, and you know what? Through that, he can change the world. So let's bring it home. Here's three things to take away. Number one, remember, our promised power is the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit indwells us. This is our promised power. Each of us who believe, and that means you, every one of you, have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Don't doubt the truth of this reality. God has given each of us a spirit of power and love and sound mind. Number two, witness. And this is our loving purpose. We are Jesus' witnesses. Jesus' words are important. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. The kingdom of God is in your midst. As nice and helpful as they are, the kingdom of God is not dependent upon legislation or free speech or social media or internet connection or radio waves or apps or technology to expand his kingdom. The kingdom of God expands as each believer witnesses to the power that they know is inside of them and the saving grace of Jesus. And then third, pray. And this is our dependent practice. Philippians 4 says this, The Lord is at hand. We, we know he's coming. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and in supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. May this church be a church that is known for devoting ourselves in one mind to prayer. A church characterized by the spirit of power, love, and self-control, sound mind. A church fulfilling her mission as witnesses of the saving power of Jesus. Because God did not give us a spirit of fear but of power, love, and self-control. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for saving us, for indwelling us, and then for giving us a purpose. And that purpose is the witness of your glory and your grace, your forgiveness, your love, and your mercy. Thank you that you promise that when people trust in you, that they get new hearts and they are filled with your presence and that through that your kingdom is realized around this planet. And so we pray for all those who do not know you. God, we want to see this planet change. We want to see peace and justice and righteousness and love and grace reign, but it only happens when Jesus is in hearts. So we ask that there would be a incredible harvest of souls in the midst of all the crazy uncertainty, God, that you would work just as you did in the book of Acts and that you would use this small band of people just like you did the 120 in that room that you would use this 150 to change the world around. We know that you can do it and we trust that you will. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.